This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This is America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. Well, Capitol Police now want to make the barricades and fences around the United States Capitol permanent. That's how worried they are about more attacks and terrorism like we saw earlier this month. How dangerous is the present situation in America, and was the Capitol attack a one-off, or is there more on the way? Mary McCord serves as legal director for the Institute of Constitutional Advocacy and Protection, visiting professor of law at Georgetown University. She's been acting assistant attorney general for national security, among many things, and previously was an assistant U.S. attorney for nearly 20 years in the U.S. Attorney's Office for the District of Columbia. And Mary, if I may, I want to start there with the attack on the Capitol. I know it is early in these cases, and they often prefer lesser charges that can be done more quickly to get the ball rolling. But what do you think of the charges that you've seen so far? Well, I think uh, this has been an impressively fast investigation, and I am seeing exactly what I expected to see, which is that uh, FBI and uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office are using the readily available tools, the, the massive amounts of video, uh, social media to quickly identify those who were responsible for the attack and to bring the readily available charges. And as you just indicated, some of those at first glance might seem simple or low level, but that doesn't mean the, that, the, that the prosecutors will stop investigating. I expect them to continue to investigating, investigate. And I think for some of those cases, when it comes time to indict, you will see additional charges. If they can prove things like, for example, seditious conspiracy, we will see those added at the indictment stage. But right now, or really, I should say, right after January 6th, it was important to thwart any additional threats. And as you may recall, uh, after January 6th, there were additional armed events planned, including on January 17th, armed marches on all 50 state capitals, and of course, January 20th. So it was important to you know, uh, disrupt any ongoing threats. And by making a lot of arrests and bringing charges, uh, I think that had that effect. You know, many of these defendants are telling the same story. My president, the commander in chief, led me to believe this was an okay thing to do. 
Does that cut any ice with prosecutors? This is especially strange because that story is the very one being used in the impeachment case against the former president. Yeah, I mean, this that's not really going to, I think, be a very effective defense for them. I do think it's um, effective at establishing, uh, frankly, President Trump's culpability and former President Trump's culpability in inciting this insurrection because it shows how much they uh, his followers hung on his every word. And then the question there would be, did he, you know, how much did he understand about that? How much did he understand about the threats of violence as he was saying, never concede, fight like hell, you know, march down Pennsylvania Avenue to the Capitol and stop the steal. Um, so I think it does. It, it's it's not surprising to me that that people who've been arrested are saying that. But I don't think in terms of a legal defense that it's going to carry very much weight. Okay, speaking of legal defense and the president's exhortations, people are talking about President Trump exhorting the crowd not to accept what was happening at the Capitol, which was making Joe Biden president by affirming the electoral votes. Votes to convict him in the impeachment don't seem like they're going to be anywhere near what would be needed for that. But impeachment's a political act. Can a president be indicted by, say, somebody in the job you used to hold for 20 years in Washington, D.C., for alleged crimes committed while in office? Uh, yes, the president can be charged with that. He, the the Office of Legal Counsel memos that people are probably familiar with um, because of so many discussions about them after the Miller Mueller investigation really just say that a our uh, guidance for the Department of Justice that say it cannot indict a sitting president while he is a sitting president. And one reason, frankly, that the Mueller report went ahead and detailed. Uh, evidence that potentially established crimes committed by former President Trump is so is so that it could make a record. It could uh, memorialize that evidence while it was fresh in case there would be any future prosecution. But once the president is out of office, he could, certainly can be charged. Now, there would be questions if what he was doing, what he was being prosecuted for, were part of his official acts as a president. Then there would be other types of defenses that would be raised to that. Um, but that's not the case when we're talking about, you know, potentially things like incitement to insurrection and seditious conspiracy and and crimes that are far outside of the official acts of uh, of a sitting president. Let me go to your national security background. We have people who are organizing violence, even an attack, of course, on the Capitol. Some of those people may have been swept up by the crowd, but there's evidence some of this was organized. You even had people carrying ties, the sort used to disable kidnapping and murder victims. You had people chanting, hang Mike Pence while invading a building where Mike Pence, then the vice president, was inside. Tell me about how dangerous you think this is. Well, you know, we saw this coming for some time. Those of us who've been paying attention to extremist groups and in particular unlawful extremist uh, private militia organizations, which, you know, one of the things that's so dangerous about them is they uh, train in paramilitary tactics. They train in the use of firearms and incendiary devices. And if you think back to the plot that was foiled uh, last year, the plot to kidnap Governor Gretchen Whitmer, that was orchestrated by a private militia group that was doing all those things, training in the paramilitary tactics and use of uh, incendiary devices and firearms in order to execute that kidnapping. And that plot, thankfully, was thwarted by very good investigative work. So these are the same types of organizations that at least some of which were involved in plotting before the January 6th insurrection. And, and we know the uh, first set of conspiracy charges has been brought against three members of a uh, militia or private militia organization. 
So there's a danger because these organizations have access and often recruit from the military and law enforcement for people who are trained in paramilitary techniques. But frankly, the biggest threat I think right now is is really that lone actor threat. I mean, right now, the far uh, right extremists, which is encompass the conspiracy theorists, QAnon uh, conspiracy theorists, as well as these far right wing militias, as well as just you know ordinary citizens on January sixth, as as you indicated, who were there because of some honestly held belief that there was fraud in the election and did get swept up. But they're all you know the the threat. Uh, right now, they're in they're in some disarray. Um, I don't think we're going to see these type of mass demonstration like we saw on January 6th right now, because there's a lot of criminal charges that are coming out. There's some finger pointing. There's between the, the groups. There's uh, groups saying that, you know, any future demonstrations would really be just law enforcement traps or Antifa traps. Or some of the militia groups are saying, we you know, essentially lay low for a little while or the Democrats are going to come after our guns and take away our Second Amendment rights. So there's a, a disarray, right? I think, right now in the far-right extremist movement that will um, that, what, that changes the threat. So that right now, what I worry more about is the, the most extreme of the extremists who might be disappointed that they think the movement is flailing a bit here post-January 6th and, and even post-January 20th and might think, well, that means I need to act. I need to do something on my own. And this is consistent with the DHS uh, threat bulletin that came out. It's consistent with, I think, what the FBI has briefed on. And it's just consistent with my experience uh, when I was you know, working counterterrorism in the National Security Division. Well, Mary, let me ask you then about something that might encourage lone actors. We have something unique. We have a member of Congress itself, Republican Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia, who has advocated violence against the government, even liking a Facebook post calling for Speaker Nancy Pelosi to be shot in the head. She's said that school shootings are false staged events, even though the children provably existed before the shootings and are now provably deceased, and that wildfires were started by Jewish lasers from space. She is in Congress. What does this say about the mainstreaming of of radical and even terrorist views? Well, obviously, those comments from Marjorie Taylor Greene, and I've seen some likewise, one from Lauren Boberg, are incredibly um, disturbing. Uh, Not only do they propagate just lies, false statements, misinformation, um, but they also, you know, in some fashion similar to, you know, the criticisms of the former president's tweets and his relationships with his uh, followers, they also, you know, can give some validation to those who actually would carry out uh, violent acts. And so I think it's very dangerous when you have a person in a position of power and privilege with a veneer of credibility who would make remarks like that, that that are, are, are um, certainly liable to be interpreted as incitements to violence. Mary McCourt serves as legal director for the Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection and visiting professor of law at Georgetown University Law Center, besides her past at DOJ and in the U.S. Attorney's Office for the District of Columbia. Mary, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. You're listening to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. 
This past week, there was a battle in the United States Senate over something that to most Americans sounded like a footnote to a technicality. It was over the organizing resolution that would effectively allow Democrats to start running Senate committees and fund them. It ended abruptly after two Democratic senators said that they would not vote to end the Senate filibuster that requires 60 votes to get much of anything done. So what was all of this about? Why is the filibuster so important and what does this say about the ways our laws are often made or often not made at all? Adam Gentleson writes about this and more in his new book, Kill Switch, The Rise of the Modern Senate. He's public affairs director at Democracy Forward and a former deputy chief of staff to Senator Harry Reid. So he's been in the middle of some of these battles. Adam, good to talk to you. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. So this was over the filibuster, which requires 60 votes, obviously, with some exceptions that we'll get to, such as judges. And we used to think about filibusters from, you know, old movies like Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, where one senator has to stay awake, keep talking and not yield as long as he could only stall the majority, not thwart it. Uh, That changed as Ted Cruz showed when he unsuccessfully used reading Green Eggs and Ham to try and kill the Affordable Care Act. So for the most part, we don't have these people standing up making long speeches. We have the 60 vote thing. And, and how has the filibuster changed and why? Yeah. So this is, this is what I get to in the book. And this is one of the most important changes in American democracy. Uh, and I think most people don't even know that it happened, but it has an impact on virtually every aspect of, of public policymaking in America and determining what laws get passed. So, you know, you're right. I think when people think of the filibuster, they think of Jimmy Stewart. Um, but that is not how the filibuster works today. Um, the filibuster uh, is now sort of equivalent to raising the threshold for passing a bill to 60 votes. Um, We've come to accept this as normal, but it's not the way it was supposed to be. Um, The filibuster was supposed to be something that you could use to delay a bill, um, and the Senate was supposed to be a majority rule body. Uh, That is the way the framers created it, and it was a majority rule body for the first 200 years of its existence. Um, The filibuster wasn't even part of the original Senate. It was invented in the 19th century, um, and and for the longest time, uh, for a good 100 years, uh, it was sort of the Mr. Smith style of, uh, of a talking filibuster. Um, in the Jim Crow era, they, Southern senators who wanted to stop the March of Progress started to innovate the use of the filibuster, not necessarily as a talking filibuster, but as applying a 60-vote threshold uh, or a supermajority threshold. At the time, the Senate was smaller, so it wasn't um, – the number was different. Uh, but they started requiring civil rights bills to clear a higher threshold than all other bills. Um, Every other bill on every other topic during the Jim Crow era uh, passed or failed in the Senate on a majority vote threshold. Only civil rights bills were required to clear the higher supermajority threshold, uh, and all of them failed to do so. So this is why we had no civil rights bills um, in this period. They were passing the House. They were ready to be signed by presidents of both parties, uh, and the American public actually supported them in in huge numbers. Um, But because the innovation of this this new filibuster, uh, they were all killed. Fast forward to today, and this is the threshold that is applied to every bill on every topic. There's no talking. There's no debating. Uh, just silently, senators raise the threshold for passage by placing this procedural hurdle in the way of the bill. Uh, and so many bills cannot pass this supermajority threshold. And that is why we fail to take action because of this sort of silent but deadly uh, new filibuster. So people keep hearing that there are ways to get around this. Uh, one, of course, we're familiar with these days, which is the executive order, which can only do some things and can, as we're seeing now, be easily torn up by the next president. The other is through reconciliation, usually a word we associate with bringing two sides together, but in this case, most certainly not. Can, can you explain these workarounds? 
Yeah. You know, so um, look, the, the, our constitutional system was designed to have the legislative body be the primary, most powerful body. And so it is pretty hard to enact big changes through any other means aside from passing bills uh, through Congress and having the president sign them. Um, because the Congress has become so gridlocked, people have started to try to innovate workarounds uh, simply by necessity, you know, the mother of invention here. So uh, executive actions are a big part of that. That's simply the president wielding the power of the executive office and the executive branch of government, which is very large now, much larger than it used to be, um, to, to determine um, a new policy. And this can be done sort of through uh, changing how you enforce certain laws, but they're indirect and they they the scope of executive actions tend to be relatively limited. Uh, reconciliation is a way to actually pass legislation, uh, and it can be used to enact laws. Um, Senator Bernie Sanders is the chair of the Budget Committee. That's where reconciliation runs through. And he's talked about using this process to enact things like raising the minimum wage, uh, enacting Biden's COVID relief plan. Um, and so this is actual laws passing. It gets around the filibuster because at no point in the reconciliation process can you use a filibuster against it, and at no point do you have to clear 60 votes. The problem with reconciliation is that there are very strict rules about the types of issues that you can use it for. Um, you can use it for a lot of economic legislation. You can use it even for some healthcare legislation, um, but you definitely cannot use it on entire categories of legislation where Biden has committed to make big changes, and those include um, many more climate change proposals than what you can do. Uh, they also include, crucially, Voting Rights Act that people have talked about, things like D.C. statehood. Pretty soon you're going to exhaust what you're able to do through reconciliation and you're going to come back to the filibuster because a lot of these other important policies are still going to run right up against it. And here's the thing, Adam. We have some big issues to face as a nation, whatever side of the political fence you're on. As we move deeper into the 21st century, a massive student debt that now dwarfs mortgages and credit cards, lack of housing, a competition with China. It's a, it's a long, long list. It sounds with the filibuster, even though you have both houses of Congress in the hands of one party and that party being the same party as the president, it sounds like we're increasingly in the position where Congress is becoming increasingly irrelevant to doing anything, and the power lies more and more in the hands of whoever is the president. And no matter which party that person belongs to, sitting there writing executive orders, whether it's Trump or Biden, that seems antithetical to the whole idea of representative democracy. That's exactly right. I think it's not healthy for our system. Um, you know, it's the filibuster, it's like a clog in the artery. Um, and it's and it's causing, you know, problems everywhere else in the body. Um, and I think that, that what needs to happen is, you know, as I advocate for in the book, the Senate should go back to being a majority rule place. You know, we've become so no we've accepted the 60 vote threshold as normal, but it's really a development of the last couple decades. Uh, we need to return the Senate to a majority rule body where, you know, the minority of the party out of power has a chance to debate has a role in the process uh, and has every opportunity to persuade people to come around to their side and have their say. Uh, it should never be like the House where the party out of power gets you know crumbs of debate, maybe 15 minutes to try to have their say on the House floor. The Senate should be a place where the minority can always, always, always have their say. But if they're unable to persuade people, uh, they should not be able to stop action from happening. Um, and at that point, after a, a reasonable amount of time, like the Senate used to do, the issue should come up for an up or down vote you know, pass or fail, majority rules, that's democracy. The framers said again and again, they were very clear about this, that while they wanted the Senate to be slow and deliberative, they really, they firmly believed that the majority should rule at the end of the day. We need as a functioning modern democracy to be able to pass common sense policies again. And that's why the Senate needs to be reformed. 
Okay, final thing. There seem to be uh, competing views about who Joe Biden is today. One is he was and always will be a creature of the Senate going back to the days when there were very conservative Democrats and very liberal Republicans, and he wants to see if anything can get done working together. Uh, He's been described by one wag as being bipartisan curious. The other view is he was vice president of the United States during the Obama administration. Half the filibusters in all of United States history were used by Republicans against Obama. So he knows very much exactly what today's Senate is. Where do you think he will go on this? For all the talk of unity and everything, where do you think he will go? His his uh, press secretary has said this week uh, twice that he is not in favor of ending the filibuster. But how far do you think he goes with that if he finds the same frustration as Obama did in trying to get things done? That's right. I think he's sort of suspended between those two personalities right now. Um, I think what he would like to see is he would like there to be a breakthrough in bipartisanship and he would like to get things done in a bipartisan way. So I think, you know, there will be a period of, as you said, bipartisan curious uh, experimentation uh, for a little while. Um, And if that works, that's the path he's going to take. If that doesn't work, though, look, at the end of the day, it's his presidency and it's his legacy and his administration. And I think the desire to get big things done is eventually going to overtake uh, the commitment to uh, these outdated rules. And this is the thing is that the Senate is an evolving institution. As I outlined in the book, You know, the whole reason the filibuster is the way it is now is because the institution has changed in many ways. Um, the rules in the Senate exist to serve a greater purpose, which is for the institution to be capable of manufacturing thoughtful, practical, common sense policy solutions to the challenges we face. When the rules stop to serve that purpose, when the rules start to obstruct that purpose, they should be changed as they have been many times throughout Senate history. So I think that you can still be a Senate institutionalist and care about the health of the institution and see that the best thing for this institution to succeed is to reform it so that it can actually rise to the challenges uh, and, and go back to its its history of greatness of actually devising uh, good policy solutions, which is something that it's fallen away from. So I think you can, you can be an institutionalist uh, and support change at the same time. So hopefully I think that's where this is headed. Adam Gentleson again writes about all of this in his new book, Kill Switch, The Rise of the Modern Senate. Adam, thank you for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. You're listening to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. (sighs) The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome back to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. And here's three terms that pretty much never go together. Shorts, Reddit, and GameStop. And yet, it became one of the biggest stories of the week as fortunes were made and lost from a subreddit most people have never seen, a way of stock investing most people don't do, and a chain of stores that most people don't go to anymore in malls where they no longer shop. And yet, billions of dollars changed hands. Wall Street kept calling a pause in trading, and the Securities and Exchange Commission has people huffing and puffing and going, what is the meaning of this? All right, it's complicated, but it's sort of fun. So let's take it a piece at a time. 
The first piece is what it means to short a stock. Now, shorting sounds almost like it means pantsing, where you pull down somebody's pants against their will. And in a weird way, it is. You're investing in a stock against the best interests of the company whose stock it is, because you're betting the stock goes down. Now, that sounds as simple as, say, betting on the Jacksonville Jaguars to lose, which is something like betting on the sun coming up tomorrow. That's such a sure thing, even Andy better bottom dollar on it. But this is the stock market, so like Kanye and Kim, it's complicated. There are a number of ways of shorting a stock, but most common is you borrow stock, you sell it quickly, hope it goes down, and then you keep the difference between the higher price you borrowed it at and the lower price the lender has to pay you to get it back. And you've probably already seen the problem. What if the stock goes up? Well, then you may be down to wearing just shorts because you have to pay the difference to the person that you borrowed the stock from. And if the stock moves a lot, you may be paying a lot and you have to pay it all at once. Now, that's a simplified version. But basically, if you think a stock is overvalued, it can be a pretty good way to make money. But if the company comes up with a cure for COVID, as I indicated, you can lose your shirt, your pants, your socks, and the only reason you get to keep your shorts is nobody really wants to see that. Which brings us to Reddit. Now, there is a Reddit subgroup. It's a chat board of individual investors who are sick and tired of the fact that regular retail dabblers like them just can't compete against big funds that have algorithms that move millions of shares in an instant, and especially hedge funds. Investment groups that generally have the respect in the world of snidely whiplash tying little Nell to the railroad tracks. So many people hiss when you say hedge funds, it sounds like the Goodyear blimp saying goodnight. Hedge funds do a lot of shorting, and the people in this one Reddit subgroup hate them for it. Now, just two other things you need to know. One is, buying and selling stocks quickly used to be something regular investors never did, because you would pay commissions on both sides of the trade, and a stock would have to move a lot to make fast trading worth it. But after some apps started charging nothing for trades, that all changed, and even the little guy could buy and sell a stock quickly with no penalty. And that finally brings us to GameStop, a chain of stores that seems to be outmoded as, say, Blockbuster. Something you never say anymore unless you live in Bend, Oregon, which has the last Blockbuster store on the planet Earth. GameStop is to video games what Blockbuster was to movies. So with its brick-and-mortar stores, mainly in malls where you can hear your voice echo as you ask, Is anybody here? This seemed like the perfect stock to short. It was so perfect, 139% of its shares were shorted. That's right. There were more contracts to short the stock than there was actual stock. You may say that's crazy, and feel free to do so. It was. Now, not only did the folks on Reddit hate that sort of behavior, they were also of a generation that had a soft spot for GameStop. No matter how outmoded it may be, no matter how it never makes money anymore, it was the beloved place where mom dumped you while she wandered through the aisles of JCPenney. So a rebellion began. The subreddit community started buying up tons of GameStop. The price doubled and tripled and doubled again. A year ago, you could buy the stock for just over 4 bucks. By Wednesday, it was 350 as the Reddit group tortured red-faced investors by making them buy tons of shares themselves to try and cover what they had already borrowed. And that had its own funny reaction, because the hedge funds buying more shares, hoping to cover their losses, drove the stock even higher. Now, none of this had anything to do with GameStop. Wall Street often sells stock for more than a company is worth, but usually they're betting on the company's future. Here, the value of the company most people think has no future was driven up by $10 billion, while individual investors, usually at the mercy of the hedge funds, were raking it in, essentially buying and selling the same stock over and over. Now, does this go on forever? No. 
Not unless GameStop comes up with a cure for COVID, which can only happen if a chemical reaction between boxes of Minecraft and Grand Theft Auto somehow can bond to proteins in SARS-CoV-2 viruses. Unlikely. Now, have some individual investors made a lot of money? Yes. Have some hedge funds lost billions? Yes. But some billionaires are even more billionaire Though hedge fund managers like Melvin Capital took a beating, investors in other troubled companies that hedge funds were shorting are now rolling in it. Companies like AMC Theaters and Tootsie Roll were suddenly in the money, and their stockholders went from trying to explain that thing in their portfolio to bragging about it. Now, will this lead to any long-standing trends? Probably not. Hedge funds write large checks to politicians, and the last thing Wall Street wants is individual investors on Reddit upsetting their gold-plated apple carts. On the other hand, nothing here is illegal, and the little guy, at least for a week, made some beloved stocks, mainly being used as basement wallpaper, alive again, including one stock that went up by 70 times in a few days called BB Liquidating, the remnant of a decade-old bankrupt company called Blockbuster. Looks like Bend, Oregon may finally be getting some new DVDs. You're listening to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. Even before Joe Biden was inaugurated, Iran started ramping things up, hoping to make itself number one in what's a very crowded agenda, what with COVID, vaccines, China, the Russia hack, the attack on the Capitol, and the list goes on and on. Earlier in the month, Iran issued an arrest warrant for Donald Trump and more than 40 other Americans in the assassination of Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps Major General Qasem Soleimani, boarded a South Korean tanker and resumed, or at least admitted resuming, the enriching of uranium at a much higher percentage, a major breach of the Iranian nuclear deal that still existed with other world powers, even if the United States no longer recognized it. How dangerous is this? Joining us is Joe Serencioni, a distinguished fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, who's been following, reporting, and researching nuclear issues in general, and Iran in particular for decades. And Joe, here's a problem. Trump was such a break from past presidents, it's now clear that unlike most changes of administrations where you might try to renegotiate a deal from the previous administration but would never just tear it up, the word of the U.S. now means nothing. If I'm a foreign leader of any sort, I have to look at any deal as having a possible four-year expiration date. How hard is it going to be for the United States to make deals with other countries, not just Iran, given that? Very hard. You put your finger on it, Gil. I mean, we tend to think of ourselves as the good guys. You know, we're America. We live by our words, the bad guys that cheat. But that is not how the rest of the world sees us at this point. You know, we, we're, we're ending four years of Donald Trump pulling out of, of solemn ag- agreements that we gave our word to countries around the world in a number of treaties that Trump then unilaterally pulled out of to the dismay of our allies, not not our adversaries. So if you're Iran, you got to be calculating, how can I trust this guy? How do I know that whatever the United States says, number one, Joe Biden is going to keep his word. Number two, that Donald Trump Jr. is not going to come back in four years and, and break it again. So it means that the U.S. has to sort of go the extra mile, has to demonstrate its good faith, which is why getting back to this agreement is quite possible. It just yesterday, the leader of Iran said that if the U.S. returns to compliance, we will return to compliance. And so the path is there. The U.S. goes back, pulls back the sanctions that Trump put in place. Iran will then start pulling back the steps that it, to- it took. The steps are simple, 
but the process is going to be complicated. How do you sequence this? Who goes first? Fortunately, Joe Biden is bringing back into this his administration many of the people who helped negotiate the deal, including Jake Sullivan, who's the new national security advisor, including Wendy Sherman, who was announced to be the new deputy secretary of state, uh, Tony Blinken, the new secretary of state. All of these people were deeply involved. They get Iran. They understand how they negotiate. They're very tough negotiators themselves. So I have confidence they can thread their way through this minefield. But, Joe, just as our elections affect this deal with Iran, they've got an election coming up. And the American killing of Soleimani and the Israeli assassination of nuclear scientist Mohsen Fakhrizadeh may lead Iranians to vote in a more conservative government that might be less willing to negotiate, renegotiate this deal. Exactly right. So we're very used to looking at our own dysfunctional political system and seeing the forces and we try to un- we understand, you know, why Republicans do what they do and why Democrats do what they do. But we tend to think of Iran as a unitary state actor, that it's just one dictator that's carefully calibrating everything he does like a, check, uh, a chess game. No, no, that's not it at all. They have fiercely competing factions within the government that are often operating at, 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 at counterpoint to each other. So the reformers, so-called reformers, headed by President Rouhani, the current president, and the foreign minister, Javad Zarif, are going to be uh, out of government in June. There's new elections. They cannot serve another term. Right now, the hardliners, people more associated with the Revolutionary Guard, the militants in the Iranian government, are, are favored to take power, which is one of the reasons President Rouhani wants to get back to this deal. He wants to show that his policies can actually improve the lives of daily, uh, uh, the daily lives of Iranians by dropping the sanctions, by improving the economy. So he's got February, March, maybe April to negotiate such a deal with the United States before the politics of the June election start to seize and freeze the Iranian political process. If he doesn't get a deal by then, chances are he his whole group, the reformers, the moderates will lose power and the hardliners will come back in. So you, the U.S. has to be aware of that and understand that that gives us a little bit of leverage in our negotiating the terms of Iran's reentry, the terms of what we will what will then be follow-on negotiations. The United States has said that, but Joe Biden, that is, has said that he wants to get back to the existing agreement, but then build on it, enter into a new round of talks to address other areas of concern with Iran, for example, their missile program or their support for Hezbollah and Hamas. I think that's reasonable, but the time is going to be short. He's going to have to start doing this immediately and sprint through February, March and April to get um, to get the deal reconstituted. Well, it's a final question. Let's talk about it. Can he get a a better deal? Jake Sullivan, who you mentioned, who was involved in the early days of the Obama administration's outreach to Iran, had some skepticism about certain elements of this in, uh, this deal. And the Middle East has changed. Iran is somewhat boxed in right now as traditional U.S. allies like Israel, Saudi Arabia, and the UAE are now working together, deciding that their disagreement of the Palestinians is not as big a deal as their agreement over Iran. And those countries would much prefer conflict over improved relations between the U.S. and Iran. So is there a chance to get something from Iran besides just a return 
to this nuclear deal, something on missiles, maybe negotiating something on Yemen between Saudi Arabia and Iran or, or something. Is there a possibility there? Yes, there definitely is, but not in one bite. This has got to be a multi-step process. And the first and easiest step, though still difficult, is to reconstitute the deal to get the U.S. and Iran back into compliance. That is the building block for everything else you want to do. That is not going to address these other concerns you raise. It's, it was designed to just deal with the most serious threat to the United States to stop Iran's nuclear program, which it did, shrunk it, froze it, put it under inspections and solve that problem. We didn't get a chance to deal with the other ones, but now we do. H- however, even though you, you, the other Arab states are cooperating, as you say, Iran is in a relatively stronger position now than they were four years ago. Trump's policy has been a miserable failure. This this maximum pressure campaign, which he said would bring Iran to its knees, bring them back to a negotiating table where he, the bastard negotiator, Trump, could negotiate a better deal. None of that happened. Iran's position is actually strengthened, particularly as the U.S. pulls out of Iraq, pulls out of Afghanistan. So we are leaving Iran's region. Iran has very strong ties to, to Iraq right now and to Syria and other countries. So they feel in a relatively strong position, it's not going to be a a matter of dictating the terms to Iran. Once again, this is going to have to be a bargain, a compromise where both sides get what they want. Step one, go back to the JCPOA. Step two, engage in then regional discussions that can address things like Iran's ballistic missile program. But as Robin Wright points out in her brilliant New Yorker article this week, that probably means getting the Arabs and the Israelis to to put restraints on their missile programs, too. It can't be a one sided deal. I think Biden can do this, but it's it's going to be a, a, a long slog. It's going to be years of tough negotiating. Joe Serenzioni is a distinguished fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, who has been watching the situation carefully for ages now. Joe, thank you. Thank you, Gil. This is America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. Larry King died this past week. It was 1992 when Larry King, mainly known for celebrity interviews, became the go-to man for an election that changed America, Bush versus Clinton versus Ross Perot. That led to a 60 Minutes conversation with the other guy who got interviews no one else could get, 60 Minutes Mike Wallace. What else did George Bush, Bill Clinton, and Ross Perot have in common? Larry King Live. Larry King. Actually, Larry Zeiger, now 58 and out of Washington, D.C., but originally a kid from Brooklyn without a college degree. His interview show on CNN the past seven years and his late-night radio show on Mutual the past 15 reach a mere four to six million people every night. But in this political year of 1992, Larry King has suddenly become a household word. Look what happens when he gets off the plane in the heartland of America, Wichita, Kansas. 
all. This can't be a welcoming committee. Well, our camera crews have followed you around. People say, there's Larry King, there's Larry King. There's... I shouldn't use the word star. Big deal? Different? <sighs> uh, kooky. A little scary. I, I, you know, Mike, I really believe this. No baloney. I'm a guy who asks questions. I'm, I'm a guy who asks questions. That's all. I'm a guy who's curious, and these things have happened to me. Okay, from it. but there That's are a lot I, of guys. But I didn't expect to be a star. Of course you didn't expect to be a star. But the nightly news is out, and Larry King is in. Why? What happened in this political year of 1992 to make people suddenly say, did you watch Larry King last night? Perot happened. The 15th caller has now said, Mr. Perot, I admire you a great deal. There's a twinkle in his eye. I see the twinkle. And something led me to say... By the way, is there any scenario in which you would run for president? Can you give me a scenario in which you'd say, okay, I'm in? If you're that serious, you, the people, are that serious, you register me in 50 states. And there it was, back on February 20th, Perot told King that he was in the race. We maybe had three million viewers that night, but by the time... The next day wrote about it, and the next day, and then he came back, and then he goes on other shows, and he mentioned our show, and then it's spun off, and this is a spin-off business, and by the time it reached the climax, probably 80 million people have now said, I saw that interview with Ross Perot. So Ross Perot's in your will. Tell me something. Yeah, maybe. I'm in his, too. <laughs> Larry King is the man the candidates want to talk to, for they've discovered what movie stars already knew, that Larry King Live is an unedited hour with this witty, chummy interviewer who frequently asks simple questions others wish they'd thought of. Bottom line, he makes his guests comfortable. Comfortable enough for an anti-abortion vice president to talk about his daughter and abortion. What if your daughter grew up, had a problem, came to you with that the problem all fathers fear? How would you deal with it? Obviously, so I would too. counsel her and talk to her and support her on whatever decision she made. And if the decision was abortion, you'd support her as a I'd, I'd support my daughter. News is made on Larry King Live, and the candidates know it. Clinton and Gore took him on their bus tour. <laughs> George Bush said yes to two interviews. Larry got in the White House. We didn't. And Ross Perot? Well, he just keeps coming back for more. New York City for Ross Perot. Hello. Basically, my style is one of utter... It's almost... I don't want to say naivety. I'm curious. I want to know why. Larry King and Mike Wallace from 1992. You've been listening to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network, produced by District Productive and Paul Witty Woodhull. I'm Gil Gross. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, early and ad-free on Wondery Plus, starting May 1st.